0: welcome to aperture we're in conversation with the people thinking and doing things differently if you like the podcast please check out our other content on aperturehub.co Welcome to episode six of Aperture. We are with Adrian Perremont, who is an angel investor, a startup advisor, and an independent mediator. Adrian works as the president of the Business Angels Switzerland, a not-for-profit angel investing association. It's the oldest one in Switzerland. And before that, Adrian did many things, including a career in marketing in the consumer goods and luxury goods sector. And she went on to found a company called Transfer Solutions, which was a relocation service based in Neuchâtel, which she sold in 2001. So, Adrian, maybe we could start by um so you, you've traveled here today from Neuchâtel. Tell us about Neuchâtel because it's a relatively large town, right, but it's not one of the most famous towns in Switzerland. So what's the appeal of Neuchâtel to somebody who's never been to Neuchâtel?
1: Okay, so first of all, good morning, Good <laughs> morning. And thank you very much for inviting me to Aperture Podcast. Thank you for accepting the invitation. Neuchâtel is not Zurich, it is not Geneva, but it lies on the biggest lake entirely in Switzerland, the lake of uh, Neuchâtel. So we always have access to the lake, and then in the back we have the Jura Mountains. And Neuchâtel is great to bring up a family, a little frustrating because if you want to do any kind of business and you need to leave Neuchâtel you always have at least an hour to reach an airport or another big city so no, there are no um, big companies based in Neuchâtel uh, yeah of course we have big companies as well which ones? like Philip Morris Johnson okay. and Johnson Selgen and to name a few and of course some watch manufacturers as in Louis Vuitton watch group which tells Tag Heuer Neuchâtel has also a lot to offer because it is the base for electronic and micro technology and uh, the EPFL has actually started MicroCity, which is part of the EPFL based in Neuchâtel, where they can profit from the expertise of that region, which partly comes, of course, from the watch industry and micro technology in general.
0: When we think about your hobbies and so on, are they are they lake and mountain orientated?
1: Yes, they are. You've summarized it really well because I, I like deep sea diving, so I don't do it in the lake, but I will do it in wherever I How can How deep is the lake? Because
0: I know this is a question they ask you when you're trying to naturalize to become Swiss. Do you know the depth of the lake? In New you know, I think that, I mean,
1: there are some places where it's at least 150 meters. I wow. mean, you know, don't quote me on that, but... Um, Cause so there things, are some places When I
0: get into the lake, that's one of the sensations I have, which, you know, when you're like swimming in the sea and you ease yourself in because it's gradually getting mm-hmm. deeper. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the lake, you dive in and it's immediately really deep. I find that, that freaks really? me out a bit. Yeah. Oh, well,
1: that has never struck me. But what's nice about our lake is you can cross it relatively easily with, let's say, a motorboat. And then on the other side, you have sort of sand dunes where you have maybe one meter of water and you can go, you know, with your children and play. So I mean, a lot of places are not deep at all. And in the center, it must be pretty deep. Yes. So anyway, yes, deep sea diving. And then my other big passion is walking and and trekking, walking in the Jura mountains, but also uh, trekking. And last year, I went on a trek to the Ladakh in North India, where the objective was to uh, climb a summit at 6,150 meters. So we did a 10 day trek walking between four and 5,000 meters. And that was just incredible and then the summit at one point I said that's enough now at 5,600 meters and so I turned back I think it was just a physical okay. limitation and also I, I'm i very Swiss so I sort of anticipate and I measure you know my efforts thinking that afterwards I have to get back down so at one point you know I, but that was really um, yeah incredible.
0: Wow so one thing I didn't say in the intro but is interesting about your background is that you grew up between here in the US and then you went on to study in the UK how was that how would you compare and contrast the US and Switzerland
1: I was born in Basel. I went to school in German and then we moved to the oh, really? States because uh, my father was working in the pharma industry. So when I was 10, we moved to the States. My parents put me in local school. We came back just before I was 15, went back to German school. Then finally ended up doing my A-levels because I had missed too much German and my German wasn't really good enough. Although today, I mean, I speak Swiss German fluently.
0: What language did you speak at home?
1: French. I'm French speaking. My parents are French speaking. So grew up in French, went to school in German and in English. Then after my A-levels signed up to go to the hotel school and suddenly last minute realized that actually I was more interested in business management more than the hotel industry so I decided to go to the UK and went to Buckingham University which at the time had just been created was the first private university in the UK supported by Margaret Thatcher and maybe a little bit more practical oriented just really perfect a lot of international's students and for me it was just fantastic
0: and why the uk if you were familiar already with the u.s you?
1: at the time i could have gone to um, brown university yeah. boston it was very simple my the dollar was four to one and my parents said if you go there then you will probably not really come back so often and the uk was more reasonable so it was more for economic reasons it was a good choice
0: but your children are now studying <laughs> in the u.s or uh, in the uk
1: In the UK, yes. So um, it's true that uh, Switzerland has an excellent uh, education system. Having had a very international background, for me, the chance for the children to be able to also have an international experience and, and see other education systems is an opportunity. So my daughter, actually, she chose when she was 15, she asked to go to boarding school. In um, in in the UK, so she packed her bags and went to boarding school, and then she stayed to do her bachelor. And um, yeah, and my son, he just did all his schooling in Switzerland, and has gone off as well.
0: Wow! And where was it in the US that you lived?
1: So first we lived in New Jersey, okay, and then we lived in the Midwest, which was Minneapolis, Minnesota, and that was. Uh, I mean, you asked me, uh, was it you know living in the states as a young teenager? It was just wonderful and it was very difficult coming back to Switzerland where it was uh, more of a stiff environment. I mean at school I came back to school and the German teacher he said to me you do understand I mean you've been away for five years there is no way I can give you more than so much as a grade, you know in German out of almost principle somehow. Whereas in (laughs) the Anglo-Saxon system it's more like okay let's find a solution and you know you've done great and let's continue like that and it's just a little bit less survival and having
0: said that you're still a fan of the Swiss education system.
1: Yes because we have I think a very good quality and high level education system and what we have which differentiates us from a lot of other countries is that students go to university but we have a whole system parallel which is what we call the apprenticeship where you finish school at 16 and then you can go on to learn a trade Uh, you're encouraged to learn a trade Maybe go to a school of commerce, learn, uh, sort of go to a technical school or more so prepare yourself to go we call the école, where you can also do a bachelor and it's parallel to the university and it's more practical it's more concentrating on uh, real maybe business cases or also engineering schools and if you want to go into tourism health hotel then you can go to a hautecole which is often more targeted to that kind of business sector having said that so we have only 20 of our students who go to university and many more who do parallel studies and and we're very strong with that instead of if you compare to France where children will go on to school until they're 18 even those who don't like school whereas here if you're not really academic you can stop school at 16 and still go on to do what you want to do. And you can continuously move laterally from one to the other. So you can finish school at 16, do a technical school, and then still do what we call a basrel, which is like a bridge, and then do a maturité, which enables you to go to university.
0: Most of what you just told me I didn't know, so that's great. Is that one of the reasons why unemployment is so low in Switzerland? Because the school system or the education system is providing the skills the economy needs rather than just pushing everybody to university education?
1: Yeah, it's also the strong economics of our of our country, but uh, certainly that we cover more. I would say our our young adults are probably yeah, better prepared and cover more factors.
0: Because if the unemployment rate is something it's like... It's almost like... Yeah, mill. but I mean, it's below... You know, there's always like frictional mm-hmm. unemployment where people... There's just a level of unemployment that comes from people switching jobs. And it's below even the frictional level of unemployment yeah, you see in is. most countries. So you're a fan of the Swiss education system because it's much more vocational and much more sort of multifaceted versus Mm -hmm. most countries are you still as big a fan of the uk education system as you were
1: i am i am it's different well even the uk system you do your bachelor and then usually you go out and you get to work whereas on continental europe you do a bachelor and then you do a master's and it's different so even the uk is relatively pragmatic you may then go back and do a master's later on or
0: Okay, we're going to slightly change track now because um, I want to talk a bit about consumer goods. This is an industry that we're fascinated by, well, or at least the transition that this industry is going through, we find fascinating. Because clearly a lot of people talk about how the internet has or is changing many industries. And not that many people talk about how it's changing consumer goods, but to us it's it's having a radical impact. I suppose what we'd like to do is ask you to compare your experience today working with startups with the time when you worked Mm -hmm. at Tag Her and at Mm -hmm. Craft and tell us what you think has changed about marketing in those years. What's you know what's what's been a constant and what has Mm -hmm. radically changed about marketing?
1: Okay, so I would say the basics of marketing have not changed. I see the startups, I mean they still have to identify their target group, how they're going to go to market, uh, evaluate their barriers to entry, the pricing strategy. So in that sense, the basics of marketing have changed. The tools have changed clearly. And to me fascinating how you can reach the consumer with a just a click through social media and I mean the internet in general.
0: You know, I think we've we've observed this happening right, which is you don't need to have a billion dollar marketing budget today. To have brands that people would recognize. But I suppose it's almost the the converse of that is that theoretically, any direct to consumer company stands a chance. But I suppose the converse argument is that people's attention span has got shorter and shorter, and we're bombarded with messaging and marketing Mm -hmm. every day. So for me, it feels a bit like a double edged sword, which is in theory, anybody can go direct to the consumer because the cost of distribution content is practically zero. Having said that, it's quite difficult for whatever you distribute to actually land with the the consumer because the consumer is time or attention bore. How how have you seen that play out?
1: You're right. I would go even further and say that the consumer is distracted. And how do you keep your audience engaged? So I would say yes, I would speak about reaching the consumer, acquiring it, and then retaining it. To reach it, yes, it's certainly easier and faster. How to acquire it? It's probably very difficult because the consumer has a lot more bargaining power. The consumer uh, has so much more access to competitive products. They have more choice through higher competition. And the fact that everyone can reach the consumer more easily, yes, it's more difficult to acquire. And then to retain, I would say you probably have less loyalty.
0: That's interesting, because I think and, the way you put it is better than the way that I put it. You drawing a distinction between reaching the consumer and actually acquiring mm-hmm. the consumer is a really good way of, of expressing that paradox that it's, everybody can reach theoretically reach anybody in the internet mm-hmm. age, but it's very mm-hmm. difficult to actually get their mm-hmm. attention and inquire that. Mm-hmm. What do you see in terms of tools that used to work and tools that work now for acquiring customers?
1: Well, acquiring the customer is fulfilling a need. If you can fulfill a need, I would say acquiring the customer is... Well, you used to have consumers' full attention because the consumer would go there where he knows that he's going to get the product. Let's say he goes into a store and he wants to buy a watch. Then he's there and you have his full attention. Today, he will do his homework at home, shop around on the internet, may then decide, okay, I want to buy you know, a Tag Heuer, maybe go into a store and, and still and buy it. But then... After that, you may think you've acquired your consumer. And then it's the retaining also, which is then difficult because Tag Heuer may try and keep your loyalty. But on the other hand, you're on YouTube watching Breitling that is using influencers to talk about their brand. So you're continuously wooed by competition
0: you worked in the consumer goods industry and you worked in the luxury industry and it would seem to me that it's much i mean intuitively much easier to acquire and retain customers in the luxury industry because you know there's a higher barrier to quality there and i'm just wondering would you agree with that statement and then secondly if we look at mass-produced consumer goods what's the future is there a, mm-hmm. still a place for the mass-produced consumer goods companies mm-hmm. and products So
1: first to speak about the luxury brands. Yes, I mean, there is still the desire to buy a luxury brand. There's a certain loyalty. Why? Because it's not necessarily a need, but it's an image. And this brand will reflect the image you want to give. And so I think that if you can feel comfortable with a brand and stick to it in that sense. So yes, there's certainly more, more loyalty concerning luxury brands. What concerns mass consumer products, the difference I would say is that the consumer has changed. You have the eco conscious consumer moving towards less consumption, less waste. Manufacturers are challenged to find new packaging methods. So yes, we still need products, but the way we consume them is changing. The consumer is uh, more comfortable with recycling. We're heading towards away from the throwaway culture to I take my mug with me everywhere. Uh, Having said that, and uh, I mean, my children, they prone that and it's very idealistic. And then I think of the family where both parents work, come home at seven in the evening. I mean, I don't see them going into the local store with their Tupperware to buy the evening meal. So I would say what's really going to make the difference is, is the packaging.
0: That's an interesting distinction you draw between you know, what's theoretically possible for the consumer to do to be more green versus what's realistic. But in general, there's, as you say, right, there's a general push towards consumers wanting more sustainable mm-hmm. products, maybe higher quality products. At the same time, is there's now this opening for new brands to reach the consumer directly. And in that context, what happens to brands that mass produce not particularly high quality products and used to get away with it by spending lots of money? Well, first of all, by producing at such scale that they could price more competitively and then spending so much on marketing that they could get the consumer to buy their product, even though it was potentially lower quality than the alternatives. Can that model still work in an age where it's possible to produce things on a smaller scale for each different type of customer demographic at the same time as it's possible to reach that consumer at the same time as that consumer is demanding high quality products?
1: Well, I would say if you take D2C as in direct consumer, that automatically is more of a local market because, you know, to succeed, you're going to concentrate on more of a local area. So that's that's changing. But if I look at mass consumer, the industry, like General Electric, for example, or or even and Gamble, what they're doing is, I mean, General uh, Electric, their most profitable line of business is, for example, the health sector, where they are working on medical diagnostics equipment, as in MRI and health data management and um, they are spending over 5 billion in R&D compared to for example Nestle which has i think about 1 and 1. 1.7 billion in R&D so take general electric they're not just selling appliances or they are working on innovation through the R&D and, and hopefully will buy the startups that are innovating, which will help them keep up with, with the market way it is today. And if you take Procter & Gamble, yes, what will happen is you can take, for example, a product of theirs like Clear Blue, which is pregnancy uh, tests, where you have Ava, uh, which you may have heard of, which is yep. a, a startup which has uh, developed the wristwatch and the mobile app, which women can wear and which will give them the nine vital signs of fertility and help them see when they are most fertile. Well, now they want to move on to and use their product as a contraceptive method. So, I mean, you have clear blue, you have contraceptive methods, which will be replaced by more new, uh, innovative and disruptive uh, products.
0: The answer isn't to carry on doing the same thing. So these mega consumer goods companies won't carry on with the same business model of mass producing for the mass consumer. Instead, what you're saying is they're likely to either push into areas where they're still emote, where they can still price and operate at scale Or not necessarily mutually Mm. exclusive, but then they'll also Mm. buy startups so Mm -hmm. they can get access to these Mm -hmm. goods that are selling to these different demographics. Or they'll invest in tech and data and the sorts of things through which they can sustain loyalty and higher pricing and deliver higher sort of long-term value to the Mm -hmm. consumer what about pricing at the start you said lots of things haven't changed customer segmentation is important brand is important if you think about toothpaste one of the ways in which you might want to price toothpaste is based on a subscription because you know you're always going to need toothpaste Mm. every couple of months and so you don't open that consumer up to temptation to being acquired by a different brand every two months instead you get the customer to sign up Mm -hmm. to a a long-term subscription
1: the company or the startup still has to define its pricing strategy the, okay, the yeah. pricing has changed. Probably you can change it two ways. A is with the infrastructure service. So how you get it to the consumer. And maybe a lot of companies are starting to do that is to acquire D to C startups, which will enable them to get to the consumer more easily. And the advantage of that is very important is A to understand your consumer, you have uh, direct access, and you're much more flexible, and you can be more innovative and implement it much more easily. So they will change the way the product gets to the consumer. Or you could, for example, do like Harry's razor blades, where you try a type of subscription, if you like, You can order uh, the razor blades directly to your home. Same thing as contact lenses. It took me a while, but at one point I realized I could order my contact lenses through the internet and with a click of a button, I reorder them when I need them and they come directly to my home. Well, there, there's not maybe a lot of marketing involved because it's more of a product that I need. But if you take Harry's razor blades, the way they've managed to address the consumer and create a certain loyalty is the way forward. Sure. Sure.
0: In terms of reaching the consumers, I, th- I guess theoretically, you know, if you think about marketing theory, it shouldn't be theoretically possible for there to be such a multiplicity of small brands in the marketplace. Because the consumer, being rational and of limited time and attention, would seek to use a supermarket theoretically or Amazon. But it's just quite interesting that we now see such proliferation of brands and products. Are platforms like Shopify making this possible? And is it a long-term trend? I.e., are we living in this new world of the long tail of very small suppliers? Or is this just a moment in time phenomenon? And ultimately, people will buy everything through Amazon and they don't really care or they can't manage with quite such a fragmented supplier base.
1: I think that they go into the um, store, they have, you know, a huge variety and choice of products. But on the internet, it's just as bad, actually. Except you're in the comfort of your home. You still have to, you know, decide what you want. So how do you decide what you want? I think that with D2C, the consumer has, has changed from physical interaction to much more of a digital hiding maybe behind the comfort of the digital world. And in that sense, there is an opportunity to reach the consumer in a more emotional way, and that is being met in the DTC with the influencers. But it's interesting because the influencers, they can, if you take Kylie Cosmetics, it's a brand, but to me, it has probably very little loyalty. What the brand is, is the image. That Jennifer portrays she as a person and, and you identify with her. And the cosmetics in itself is nothing special on it on its own.
0: There's two things that you said that I want to pick up on. The first one is around influences and the second one is around the emotional pull of brands. So if we, if we start with influences, why do you think that's so much more important than in the past? So why, why do you think it's, it doesn't work as well for us to hire famous people and have them market the brand? Why do, why do you think it's somehow sort of more authentic if people pay influencers? Because they're still asking somebody to advocate on your behalf.
1: I, I would differentiate the influencers, which are George Clooney, which will market if you like your brand and, and give a certain image that you can identify to, and the influencers who are themselves marketing their product and getting their product out. And which is working. And this comes to your second uh, question about the emotion. So there is less physical interaction people need to be entertained they need to be somehow emotionally touched in another way than maybe in the past where you would have more physical interaction and so in that sense you need to identify yourself with others maybe more so because you're alone with your in your digital world and I would add that brands should actually lead the example of helping consumers move away from from this digital filter bubble that we're in
0: so listening to you i think what occurs to me is that one using emotions important because you need to cut through the noise and reach and engage a consumer who is Mm -hmm. busy time poor attention poor so that's i think i agree with you on that and then i think the second thing is we're listening to you and this crystallizes something that i've been thinking myself which is the role of the consumer has changed right the consumer is no longer just somebody who passively consumes mm. the role of the consumer is somebody who's also an advocate for the product because i suppose the difference was that we weren't connected to each other in the same way as before you know because we are now networked consumers and so the emotional pull makes us feel something that's more likely to make us advocates for the brand and then secondly our advocacy is more likely to be heard than it was in the past because we're all connected to each other through these social channels. And I think that's the difference, right? You know, in the past, you used to have to pay for George Clooney to advocate on your behalf. But now not only does that fill in authentic, but secondly, if you can use emotion, you can get the consumers to do that for you on a much bigger scale than you can today with George Clooney and the decline of mass marketing channels, right?
1: Yes, but also because the consumer's objective, if you like, has changed. He wants to live a memorable experience. Maybe they will prefer an experience over ownership. There's less the need to possess material things. It's maybe partially financially more attractive, but it's more the experience of living someplace original in someone else's home in in that sense the consumer ha- has yep. changed and has other demands and, and adding to that is of course again the whole eco-conscious consumer he will more and more want to know if i buy you know this clothing where is it being made how is it being made and how is it being transported
0: great okay so we're going to change track again We're going to ask you about transfer solutions. For the benefit of our listeners, what is a relocation agency? Okay,
1: a relocation agency is you have just accepted a job in another country. You are moving to this uh, new country and you will arrive and sooner than later you will need to be 100% productive in your new job. And you need to organize your life around your job, accommodation. Maybe you have a family and you need to organize schooling. Uh, Where am I going to be able to continue my Pilates? It's another language. So relocate to a new environment and get organized as quickly as possible. You can be in your new job.
0: And I suppose, and I don't know if this is the case in other countries, it doesn't, feels to be particularly acute in Switzerland, which is everything you say is true, right? So if you're moving to Switzerland from another location, Mm -hmm. you've got all of those things that you said are true, Mm -hmm. right? Which is... Mm -hmm. Um, it's a different environment. You don't know the best places to live, mm-hmm. that close to, you know, in proximity to the best schools. You've got the language barrier. All those things are true. And in addition, what seems to be the case here is that you've also got an acute shortage of housing, right? So you want somebody to be giving you the very best advice and helping you to find the very best property because there's so much competition for those properties. So when you formed the company, how important was that last point?
1: Well, Nashata no, is maybe a little bit different because A, the market is relatively uh, small. At the time, uh, the the biggest problem was having furnished apartments because there was no real demand for that but otherwise the um, uh, housing market was relatively accessible actually our biggest problem was that sometimes they had too big bigger budgets so and we couldn't find expensive enough housing really? I would say the main difference is 20 years ago it was totally different you didn't have the internet to help you today it's it's different you can shop around probably find your uh, local gym that could corresponds exactly to what you're looking for relatively quickly. Probably most of the um, information is in English. So it's different. 20 years ago, there was a real need for relocation services. And actually, my thought was in Neuchâtel, there was really no relocation service. There were a few international companies. Okay,
0: So you were ahead of the curve on this. 20 years ago, when you started Transfer Solutions, it was one of the first.
1: Of course, they had them in Zurich, they had them in Geneva, but in Neuchâtel, they didn't have them. And that I really realized because when I then uh, started, uh, so I went very proudly knocking uh, my first uh, company who said, oh, thank you very much, but we're just fine and people love coming to work for us and there's no demand for that. Until they would call back and say, he or she won't sign, please help me because the family doesn't want to relocate, they're lost. And and this is where uh, we could really make a difference for our client. Our client was not the family relocating, but the company who really wanted that person to come and work for them.
0: And when you launched the company and the years that you ran it, I mean, it coincided with a real boom, right, in in companies moving here. Because looking at, I mean, maybe Swiss Switzerland more than the eastern part of Switzerland, but it seems that there is there's been a slowdown of multinational corporations moving into Swiss Switzerland. But the time that you were doing this was a period when lots of companies were moving here for for whatever reason. Do you think that you were doing this in exactly the right place and at the right time?
1: And there was a little different in Geneva, you had Procter & Gamble that arrived with about a thousand employees. <laughs> at one go from, I think they came from Munich. Uh, that was totally different. In Neuchâtel, it wow. was mostly existing companies, but who had trouble convincing foreign employees to come in and work for them. But one example where Energizer, they were closing their factory in Rouen and France being France, they of course had to find solutions for their employees so they could either pre-retire or they were given the opportunity to come and join Energizer in La Choute Fon. So they hired us to organize a two-day program program for these 10 families to come and and see if they could you know be uh, motivated to come to La Chaux-de-Fonds. and actually three families did move to La Chaux-de-Fonds, integrated and I like to believe it's partly because we showed them that it was it was possible to to do it yeah. for the whole family the children the spouse of course if you can let's say you're going to accept a job you don't know how you're going to convince your spouse who maybe is giving up their job or doesn't know how he or she will integrate and then having someone who will show you in a nutshell the the benefits of the the region and and show you that you can be organized and and when you have your, your accommodation where you can get the things you will need if the person doesn't speak the language accompany them wherever they need to go I mean that makes all the difference
0: Why did you sell the company?
1: I had to make a decision. I had just given birth to my fourth child at that time and I was already extending to the Lausanne market as well. Either I needed to find other uh, ways to expand the business because the market just was not big enough. So I could have, for example, offered additional services to the expats, I mean, to the company, as in maybe the billing system and what have you. That was one decision. Or the other was, yeah, maybe I could sell it to a relocation service who wanted to penetrate the the Neuchâtel market. And I then chose, well, the latter option because I had this opportunity to then uh, sell to this company who wanted to quickly expand their relocation service.
0: So you built this company that you successfully sold while also looking after three kids, right? How tough was that?
1: The tough part was working from home, actually, because it's very difficult to then separate family and professional. On the other hand, it gives you the flexibility to juggle with both. Of course, I had a, an au pair girl to help uh, with the children. I would say that I was privileged because I could choose whether I wanted to work outside of the home or have more flexible activities which would enable me to take care of, of my family and in that sense I put my career per se on the back burner uh, it was a choice I made and leads me to today world where a lot of the parents they want to have it all and they can I mean they could have it all in the sense that I mean now the external structures that exist for the children um, daycare centers and canteens there were no canteens at the time I mean your children came home for lunch and uh, now, uh, even in Neuchâtel, we have uh, canteens. The fact that there are more government laws that have come out, I mean, imagine that a parent can have up to three days off per month to take care of their sick child. And it's usually, I'm afraid, the woman who will take these three days. Uh, not often of the father. But having said that, I want to come back to the question of choice. At the time, I made a choice. My choice was also partly based on the fact that we were in the Chatel, which is a smaller market, and there were probably less professional opportunities also uh, for me, and that I had a husband who traveled a lot. So were we both going to be away a lot? Yes or no? So That was a choice that we made together. And today, parents still need to make choices. They still need to make choices. I I like to take uh, the example of Helen Morrissey. She's a very famous CEO of an investment bank in the UK. She had nine children. Well, her husband stayed at home and took care of the children. Great. It's a decision, you know, they made made together. But yeah, you need to make choices. And I think today it's a little bit of, I, I want it all. I want it all. And sometimes, and I think it's negative for the women, they want quotas. They want supposedly the same rights, if not more than the men. Take parental leave. Okay, the women have parental leave. Why not offer parental leave to one or the other? Why should both of them have it? To me, it's a question still of of choice, of responsibility, individual responsibility. So you're saying, you're saying that the
0: transfer solutions was a business that you could run around your family and the other obligations and responsibilities you had. And if I interpret you correctly, you're saying that versus them, and now the infrastructure that exists to support two parents that want to work is much better than it was so we have you have canteens even in new chateau so you have canteens you have you know better childcare crashes but you're saying notwithstanding that you still need to make these choices about who's going to be the primary breadwinner
1: Families, they don't want an au pair or a living nanny because they want their privacy or they don't want to use an additional room for a living nanny. So what happens is at six o'clock, they drop their pencil and they say, well, sorry, I have to go and pick up my child. Or uh, my child is sick. I cannot take him to the daycare center. Or my child has ballet class. And more often than not, it still falls on, on the mother who will, well, because the father, he doesn't have the time. But she has a management job. So it, it's not, still not very attractive for the employers today. Yeah.
0: So you've also been involved in local politics for a long time. What, why did you get so involved in local politics? Was it, was it some of these questions... Around supporting working parents, you know, what was the motivation for getting into politics?
1: The main motivation was, well, first of all, was I was a little naive, and so I made a donation to the Liberal Party, and they then called me, and then I was hooked. And then I felt I was, well, I was working from home, I had more time, and I felt it was my civic duty to be involved uh, in local politics.
0: Do you think that sense of civic duty was something that came from your schooling in Switzerland? Like, why, why do Swiss people feel this very strong sense? Duty.
1: It was two things. It's one that I had maybe, I thought I had something that I could contribute and I had the time to do it. So no, it is not due to, um, <laughs> to my schooling or it was more of a personal. Uh, do
0: you think as a, through local politics you can have a bigger impact in Switzerland than you could in, say, the UK, which you're familiar with, or the US, which where you've lived? Because such a large amount of autonomy has devolved down to the cantons mm. and the communes.
1: Well, it's it's difficult for me to, to judge how political system work locally uh, in other countries. What I can say for Switzerland is I was a little naive because I had seen how other politicians work around me, and I thought cannot be that difficult. I'm going to go in there. It's like a business. I'm going to look at it, and we're going to you know set it straight, and and then <laughs> no problem. And the fact is, it's not that easy. And that was a good lesson. It took me 13 years. Um, it was a good lesson because it's not a business. It's not a yeah, business. I think this is one of the big mistakes that people yeah. make to draw that analogy. Between and all and business. business people I know who entered politics after a few years, they leave again because it's just too frustrating. It's frustrating for two reasons. One is because you have to take into consideration, if you take a village of certain infrastructure, you may have to keep up, build, even though it's support local communities, social welfare, you cannot just exclude that completely and run it like a business. The second is that you're continuously confronted by people across from you who don't have the same opinion as yeah, you. <laughs>
0: yeah, And you can't and just say, I'm the CEO, do what, do what I say. Yeah.
1: No, no. So um, it's good to be challenged, but it can be very frustrating frustrating as well
0: is it fun politics in switzerland and i mean you use the term you wanted to put things right but i would argue that a not from any particular position of knowledge but it seems to me that very little seems to needs to be put right and secondly that i can't imagine it being that exciting swiss politics because maybe i'm wrong but when i think about swiss politics i almost think about you know working like utilities sort of you know it just works it's in the background
1: exciting is not the (laughs) term i would use Again, the exciting part, if you like, is that you are representing the people who elected you. And so you have a certain responsibility. It's fun when you have the majority. It's less fun when uh, when you don't. But I was, for example, in the um, uh, school commission or in the finance commission. You have to deal with the issues, find solutions, and yeah, it it is a, a challenge to try and convince the other parties to see your way. So that can be exciting. Yes
0: use the term um, you wanted to put things right what needs to be put right about swiss politics because it just seems to you know those of us that are not that close that it works unlike you know right now for example Anglo-Saxon political environment.
1: By putting right what I mean is but that's of course uh, my opinion is limiting government regulations, giving the uh, individual and society more liberty, um, more uh, responsibility. So which is of course a long-term ideology and more down more on a practical basis is not living above your means. The Swiss Germans actually are much better at that than the than the Swiss French.
0: We should talk about Business Angel Switzerland, which is what you're currently working on. So tell us a bit more about Business Angel Switzerland. What, what does the organization do? Um, how did you get involved? What's the difference between Business Angel Switzerland and some of the other angel investment groups in Switzerland?
1: Okay, so Business Angel Switzerland, we call us BAS, Business Angel Switzerland. We are a non-profit association with about 90 members in the Swiss-French and in the Swiss-German, mostly Zurich area. We have members uh, who pay a membership fee, come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Could be young, retired people from have a legal, financial, a lot of engineering background, marketing, independent individuals who've had maybe successful company that they've sold. We all have one thing in common is we want to, we've maybe been lucky uh, and we want to give back to uh, young entrepreneurs, share our expertise, uh, invest some of our money and, and, and share our networking.
0: So I'm not going to name any other angel investment groups because um, I don't think you probably want me to, but they exist. And in their mission statement and in their day-to-day operations, they sound like BAS. So how would you draw a distinction between Baz and some of the other angel investment groups?
1: I would say there are a few differences. The first difference is that we cover really all sectors. We're not specialized in one sector. So it's life sciences, ICT, a little bit of fintech, not so much, clean tech. So the product and technology uh, sector. Uh, Another difference is that we are really a club where we can, I can say we're friends. We meet, we have a meal together, we listen to startups pitch, we do the due diligence together, we share, we compare, we call, we ask for advice, and the members know each other. And although we then invest individually. So maybe a big difference is we don't put all money together in a common pot, which is then invested. Everyone invests their own money, but we do all of the screening, due diligence, investment process together. And afterwards, we follow the company together. So it's a close-knit community, and I would say that's that's the difference. It's a
0: bit like Angel Investment Group meets Social Club. In a way, yes. In a way, yes. And how do you get the deal flow? How do you get the entrepreneurs bringing their companies to you and So
1: what we have is we have a platform and a lot of our startups uh, will sign up on our platform. They either come on their own because we have a certain reputation in uh, the Swiss ecosystem, but we are also we the members quite active we have a, a general manager she is the key person in the club who organizes the events but also is very active in the ecosystem and is in constant contact with startups our members are ambassadors you can sign up to be an ambassador and then you participate in events and you encourage potential startups to come and sign up on our platform we participate in uh, juries for example the venture kick Where we see potential uh, startups could be interesting for our members, we encourage them to sign up on our platform.
0: Can you point to any great success stories, companies that you've invested in that have big exits or pretty large organizations today?
1: Bass has existed for a little over 20 years and a little over 10 years in the Swiss-French. So it's the oldest, but still relatively young. We've had about six exits in that period of time, which is 5% of all of our investments with returns of um, multiples of between 2.6 and 10 fold uh, multiples. and over between three and some of our oldest investments lasted 10 years, which is not surprising for the Swiss market, which has a relatively long uh, life cycle. All in all, we've had about 120 investments. Today, I would say we have a few companies that are hopefully close to an exit. I can mention uh, one which is called Smixin, which is in the uh, clean tech. So it's a diffuser, which is put in the tap which enables you to wash your hands with soap, rinse your hands with one deciliter of water. So this could be used in all public areas it's a company which was started 7-10 to years ago and now they have just have CWS who took a big stake in this company over 10% and which is going to help get it to the market so it's a promising startup you have to be patient it's a long go-to-market that's one of the things in Switzerland we're like a deep nation good with product technology Uh, with our engineering schools we have uh, access to innovative RNA which leads to products but it's a long life cycle i mean it's like three years at headquarters six years go to market and then the growth is another i don't know six six to ten years
0: it's when people join as angels is that something that you have to impress on them the fact that they need to be very patient because switzerland is not like many other markets which is i guess on the plus side you have you know fewer failures but mm-hmm. on the negative side it takes a lot longer for some of these mm-hmm. businesses to to reach their potential because we're talking about b2b typically mm-hmm. deep tech You said that's a fair description of Switzerland? It
1: is. And what you could do is try and find or encourage alternate methods of exit possibilities. One would be that when you have the follow-on round and the next investor comes in that he buys you out, it may be a little bit less of an interesting multiple, but it enables you to get your money back and reinvest it. So it's interesting for the ecosystem. And what we say to the startup, because that's one of our criteria for investing in a in a startup, is that they have an exit strategy. Exit strategy does not mean that they have to sell their company within so many years. It could be that they will be profitable and buy back our share. And that is maybe a way to shorten the time to exit. And one example is um, a startup that we invested in, I think it was two years ago, two or three years ago, and we've just had an exit now with a multiple of close to three times being bought back by the next investor
0: when you look at the investment market do you see that as a big gap so you've got companies that where it makes sense for for venture capital because these companies will have a clear exit versus those that will go on to be reasonably successful generate lots of cash i e do you think there's a model to not invest equity but maybe invest debt you know and it's not well served by banks because banks like to invest in companies that have a long history of, of financial records and assets they can lend against, which is not typically the case for a startup?
1: We do invest with convertible loan. We do do that. But the idea is always to have an equity stake at one point. That is the basis of angel investing, is you have a stake in the company. So yes, the question is, how do you then realize your investment at one point?
0: Have you thought about creating a secondary market for those that aren't IPO suitable, but would have people that want to get access to those cash flows and dividends?
1: Dividends could be interesting in Switzerland because we don't pay taxes on capital gain. But otherwise, for me as a business, as an angel investor, it's it's not interesting, no, but maybe.
0: What's the value proposition of Bass versus other angel clubs if there's competition for angel investing? Are there some things that you offer that other angel investing clubs don't? You
1: know, I ask young new members, why did you choose Bath? Well, you know, we looked around, we went to the different angel investing clubs and we chose to come to Bath because of the way we work together and being able to share the experience and it makes it more fun. But I wouldn't look at the other angel investing groups as competition at all. Personally, I like to work with them because let's say a startup is looking to raise a million. They won't get a million from Bass. Our investment rounds vary between 150 and 400. And if you can have another angel investing club who will also, then it's positive for everyone. So I like the idea of working together and there's enough to go around.
0: We looked at the data from Swiss Startup Mm Ticket and there has been a massive rise in the size of the venture market in Switzerland over the last three or four years. What do you put that down to? Do you think it's just because more and more people are realizing that it's an asset class that has much higher returns than others and also you have more capital seeking returns because we're living in a country with negative interest rates?
1: Yes, the way asset management and investment in general has has been since the financial crisis is that, yes, it was more difficult to invest in traditional asset classes. And so there was certainly an interest to do more like angel and or even investing in funds which are active in, in seed capital or series A or B. Having said that, there's also a curiosity and an interest to be part of the Swiss- startup ecosystem. It can be through mentoring, and coaching through participating in foundations or associations that support uh, startups or through investing money. And if you are all alone, then it's difficult to find the startups. It's difficult to, you will have maybe a, a small amount to invest. So you can either join an angel group that will invest for you, or you can be an active angel investor in an in a association like BASS, which will give you access to the startups.
0: So I know you, you're relatively sector agnostic. But is there anything you particularly look for in the startups? You know, do you have a quote-unquote investment thesis?
1: Okay, so at Bass, what we do is we have a jury, and the jury will pre-screen the startups before presenting them to the members. Our criteria is that they have to be based in Switzerland. They have to have a disruptive technology. So that is, there has to be an innovation. Services, all that is less so I mean unless they have software something which is innovative if possible with an IP and then they have to have a low valuation and have an exit strategy and offer a place on the board either as a member or an observer and if they meet this criteria then usually there's a pretty big chance that they will be invited to come and present which does not mean that the members will be interested so I would say it's the innovation and it's the team and it's the valuation and it's the milestones they set and for me personally is the way they manage their cash flow in anticipation of maybe future rounds. And again, we have a long life cycle. So if you have a product, maybe it's disruptive innovation, but it's also risky because maybe you have the prototype, maybe you don't even have the prototype yet, but then you will have to industrialize it, you have to go to market. And the market in Switzerland is small. So at one point you want to export, which is, of course, more costly than if you were, let's say, already in the States. So all that you have to take into account. And sometimes the startups don't anticipate that enough.
0: How bullish are you about Switzerland as a startup ecosystem? And you can answer that both in absolute terms and also relative to other... Places, if you wish.
1: Switzerland is, I would say compared to other countries, it's a startup country. The startups are everywhere in Switzerland. It's true that roughly 50% of the startups come from the Zurich and Canton Vaud region, but then you have 7% in Geneva, 5% in the Zoo area, but you have Basel, you have Fribourg. And what's interesting is the entrepreneurs, the startups, they profit from the expertise of our industry. So you will have life sciences, of course, in Basel, but you will have incubators like Biopol in the Lausanne area. Then you will have startups in St. Gall, So it's all of Switzerland that is involved in a way, like maybe a region in, a, in another country.
0: It certainly seems to be a well-balanced ecosystem in the sense, you know, not many places have such a good coordination between government specialists and well-beating mm-hmm. universities, world-leading incumbent companies, as well as, I suppose, a lot of capital that can be invested.
1: The Swiss startup ecosystem is very dynamic. It's very dynamic, partly because we have our two engineering schools. We have EPFL in Lausanne, and we have the ETH in Zurich, which has doubled its uh, researchers in the last uh, 20 years. It attracts a lot of foreign brains, so we have excellent schools. And parallel to that, we have all the parallel engineering schools and what we call the Haute Ecole, the um, Lausanne Hotel School, Saint-Gal. And then we have the government support, which is very important, is Inno Suisse, that enables uh, startups to have grants linked to R&D, training, mentors and sometimes not enough matching between the startups and investors. But they have a budget of 200 million, which may seem like a lot. In Israel, it's uh, 1.6 billion. So uh, that's the big problem in Switzerland is that, I mean, there's no money. This was an example of government support. But if you look at how how much is being invested, it's last year was about 1.4 billion. And in the States, it's 155 billion. We are certainly more risk-averse, but probably Europe... Uh, in general and I would exclude uh, London internet uh, companies will probably never really develop the same way in Europe as, as they do in America and in, in China that's partly due to uh, lack of expertise so yes if you take Switzerland we have created the foundation in uh, Martini the IDIP which uh, is specializing in AI has started a master's in AI works together with the EPFL great and it's good and, and if they can develop the research and development that's good but if they are any good they will most probably leave so why it's partly because of the funding and if you take the us as an example they're less risk averse and they just invest faster uh, and more
0: what would be your either your one piece of advice or your one request from the different stakeholders within the swiss startup ecosystem so Let's call them entrepreneurs, investors, and universities and policymakers.
1: I would say that for the stakeholders, the ecosystem is to develop on the one hand, the link between the startups and the investors, but more so try and fill the gap between seed investing, which is what angel investors do and follow on investments where the VCs, they want to see revenue, they want to see the product working, and there's a gap in between. And there's only so much that in angel investors can invest, but often it's just not enough. And and our strategy at Bass is when you invest, you should take into account the same amount in follow-on investing. Because there will be a follow-on round before you can attract big investors. So for the ecosystem, that's what so I would like say. So you'd like
0: to see the, go- the government coming in to fill some of that gap between... The seed investor and the Series A VC investor.
1: For me, the ecosystem is not only the government. The government can, through organizations like InnoSuiz, Digital Switzerland, promote and make the startup world more attractive to investors, yes. But the whole ecosystem has to, and even the, the VCs and, and us, we should also work at filling this gap between us and, and future investors. So it's not just the government entrepreneurs, keep your valuations low. Why? Because you will need most probably need follow on rounds, you will have set your milestones, but you will have your product development, your go to market will have taken longer than you think you may need an additional uh, round. And if your valuation is too high, you will spend too much time trying to get this funding you cannot get because you're not generating revenue yet. And you're not far enough advanced in your um, product development. And a down round is always frustrating for everyone. So I would say keep your valuations low and think cash. All along, you will need. If you don't have cash, uh, you don't have a business. And if you need to concentrate on getting uh, more cash, then you're taking away your energy from your from your business. And for the investors, uh, angel investing is exciting. It can be very rewarding, but it's very risky. And you need to diversify. And you need to set an amount that you could basically lose. Angel investing is. Uh, giving something to the ecosystem, it's helping entrepreneurs, it's networking, but it's also getting a return on your investment.
0: Perfect. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for making the trip from New Châtel.
1: Thank you, Ben.